Let's try it again. One more time. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father, and I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning, the reality of the resurrection. Would you open up our hearts today for your glory, Lord, and for our good. Uh, would you help me um, to be helpful to my brothers and sisters here this morning on this beautiful day? In the name of Christ that I pray, amen. She was in the dark. And she was confused, though she was painfully aware of what had happened. Her world was shattered, her heart was raw, her dreams were broken, brutalized, left in pieces. And at this point, her body was weak with fatigue. At this point, her body trembled with adrenaline shock. And I imagine at this point, her mind was muddled with emotional overload. Her eyes red, swollen, bleary. The world was blurry through the veil of tears. Her name? was Mary, and her hope was buried in a dark tomb. See, her world had changed on Friday when everything went dark, when it seemed all the lights went out in the entire world. Now today we join Mary in watching the dawn of renewal rise over the dark, and we're going to attempt to see Easter through Mary's eyes. And if grace gives us the eyes to see, we will see that we share a good deal in common with this woman who is found grieving in the graveyard, whose life is turned brilliant in a moment, whose life is turned right side up in a split second, whose world is renewed at the speed of sound, at the sound of one word, which we'll get to here in just a bit. Now, we must remember when Easter begins, it's in the dark. It starts out in a terrible dark. It was the darkest of nights the world had known before that happy dawn, before the golden light of hope rose over the pain-riddled landscape. See, on Good Friday, Jesus had been bloodied. He had been tortured. He had shockingly died, and he'd been buried in the earth. The word trauma doesn't do it any justice. The disciples' world had died that night, and creation shuddered at the death of Jesus. And as Jesus, as we know, he was put into a tomb, but he wasn't put into any old tomb. He was put into a garden tomb. He was buried in a place that was designed for flourishing. He was buried in a place that was designed to bring about harvest. He was buried in a place that was designed to bring life up and out of the ground. We all know a garden is a place of both physical and symbolic renewal. And this is exactly why Jesus was put in the garden tomb. He was the seed. He was the seed of a new world, the seed of a new reality. Because Easter is not just some point in history. Easter is the pivot of all of history. When heaven invaded and renewal began, that will ultimately renew everything. And so today we are going to turn to John chapter 20. We're going to listen 
and watch and see how this new life emerges from the soil of the story, how new life emerges from the ground. Now, the story is loaded with glorious things to see. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. If you're new to the Scriptures, there are four Gospels. The word gospel means good news. It's the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done. One's written by Matthew, one by Mark, one by Luke, and one by John. We're in the one written by John today. And we're going to be in John chapter 20. We'll have the verses up here. And what we're going to do is we're going to enter into the flow, enter into the stream of the story. And I'm going to do my best to be something of a, a tour guide to look at some of the, the wonders that are here in our text. So, John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. This is Sunday. This is the first day of the week. For the Jewish people, the last day of the week was Saturday, was Sabbath, was Shabbat, which meant Sunday would be the first day of the new week. It was the start of the next week. So again, this is the first day. It's Sunday, the start of the week, and it's time to get back to work, right? But this isn't just a time marker in our story. This is a key truth. So keep this bit right up here as we move forward. This idea that this is the first day of the week, the start of a new week. Now the Sabbath, the day of rest and doing no work is over. The work week has begun. It's time to get up and get moving and do things again. And so as soon as she can, Mary makes her way to the tomb where she knows that Jesus is buried. Now this is Mary. She's an apprentice of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This Mary is an apprentice. She is a, a disciple of Jesus, and she has seen and heard some incredible things. She has heard Jesus teach in ways that nobody had ever heard. She has seen Jesus heal a blind man. She has seen Jesus lift a man off a mat who was paralyzed for 38 years and walk again. She has seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And one of the most amazing things, he loved her even though he knew her past. He cared for her. He ministered to her, and she loved him. And so at the opportunity that she could, she went to that tomb to be with him, to grieve near the presence of his body. This, this is born of love. She wanted to be by him. So it's dark. you got to imagine that. It's dark. The scene is dark. It is the you should definitely be in bed hours of the morning, okay? And so she's stumbling through the darkness to make her way to the tomb. Her eyes are bloodshot with tears. Her her body is aching. The world's longest Saturday was just the day before. And so imagine it, by the way. Imagine this. If someone that you love dearly was violently and brutally killed in a public shaming, and you barely had time to process the brutality, the surreal nature of everything you just observed, and then you make your way to the cemetery, and you go to the plot where they're buried, and you go, and suddenly there's a hole there. It's, it's open, and they're gone. What, do, what happens to you? What happens to you chemically in your body? What goes on? Your brain short circuits. This is not the way it's supposed to be. What in the world is happening? See, this is the shock, and this is the, the dismay that Mary experiences. She knows full well that his body should be there. 
And then some other thoughts come colliding into her head. I imagine she knows full well that grave robbing is a, is a common phenomenon in their world. And she knows full well that there's intrigue surrounding Jesus. There's enemies surrounding Jesus. And so she assumes. She assumes the body's stolen. And so she runs to find Peter and, and John, who are two of the key leaders in this group of followers of Jesus. And she tells them what she assumes. We don't know where they have taken him. By the way, the we in there might not make sense from our story, but in the other gospel accounts, we know that she's with a group of other women who went there, saw the stone removed, and ran. She said, we don't know where they've taken him. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple is John, who's writing this gospel. And they were going toward the tomb. Now both of them were running together, but the other disciple, he outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths, that's the grave clothes, lying there, but he didn't go in. Okay, so here, the two, when they hear the news from Mary, they jump up and they race to the tomb. Now John gets there quicker. Um, he's younger than Peter. He's faster than Peter. So y- you know, by the way, um, this is interesting, but this, this conveys a really important theological truth. John's faster than Peter. Like, that's, that's what this tells us. It tells us that John is more like a wide receiver and Peter's something of a fullback, may, maybe a center at, at best. And it tells us that this is an eyewitness account, right? This detail is telling. These particular things happen. Easter is no myth. It's a history. This is the memory of an old man who's writing this, remembering the particularity of, I got to the tomb first. Peter was huffing and puffing behind me. I remember getting there and skidding to a stop. This is history. This isn't myth. This isn't make-believe. This is a memory. Now John gets there first. He looks in and he sees the grave clothes lying there in in the place and in the shape of Jesus' body, but there's no body in them. Gone, evaporated, dissipated, as though he just moved through them. We get to verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him, out of breath I imagine, and he went into the tomb. And this is just like Peter, right? He's brash. He's passionate. He's like a bull in a china shop. He is shoot, aim, get ready, maybe fire. Like this is Peter. He's just like all momentum. So he goes in. And then he sees the linen cloths lying there. But he's closer now because he's in. John's not. So he sees a detail that John didn't see. He sees the face cloth, the face linen, separate and and folded. And then he realizes, "Mm. no, no, this isn't a grave robbing. There is no sign of hurry here. There is no sign of haste. There is no, quick, the guards are coming. Get the contraband and go. Something else has happened. Something has happened. His jaw is left open. He's wondering. He's confused. What in the world happened here? Then we get to verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So here, John comes into the cave tomb because that's essentially what it was it was a cave cut into a rock wall that was turned into a tomb so so john heads in 
and it clicks. It's interesting, um, the, the word here in, in the Greek when he says he sees, it's not just an observation of a fact or a detail. It's, it's an observation of something, but there's perception, there's understanding, there's comprehension. John sees, he knows what it means. He knows Jesus is alive, he's risen from the dead. This is not a crime scene. This is a scene where heaven has invaded earth and healing has begun. This is a scene of victory over death. Now, these two leave, it says. They head back home. At some point, Mary comes back. Remember, she's tired. She's exhausted. She had already gone there and run. These two bolted and they run there. They're gone. Now Mary's coming back. But she's still brokenhearted, right? She's still Easter blind. Now, quick fact, quick fact check with me. What day is it? It's, it's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. Okay, hold on to that. So verse 11, Mary's weeping. There she is, weeping again at the tomb. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So again, there she is. She's weeping. She eventually has the strength to look into the darkness. She eventually has the strength to, to face the emptiness and the despair. But rather than looking in and seeing the sadness of an empty tomb that tells a story of the stolen body of her beloved Jesus, she sees something heavenly. She sees two angelic beings and they speak and they ask, why are you weeping? See, they have a completely different perspective on reality. They have a different vantage point. They're like, how could you be crying? The greatest thing on earth has happened. But her griefs and the world's darkness made her Easter blind. She still thinks the thieves have robbed the grave, not knowing King Jesus has conquered it. Now quickly, before I go on here, I want to say there's a little bit of an Easter egg here. Um, some of us have seen a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie where there's a scene with an Easter egg. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's a detail, there's some little thing in the background, or there's some little side conversation, or there's something going on where, like, if you don't know what's going on, you just miss it. But if you know what's going on, you're like, oh my goodness, that's a reference to episode five, right? Or that's a reference. And then suddenly there's all this other story that comes rushing into the scene. There's an Easter egg in here. And it's the third service. I didn't get to do this in the first two, so I'll do it really quick for you guys, okay? I'll open the Easter egg just a little bit. Mary looks in. There's the flat space where the body is. There's an angel here at the foot. There's an angel here at the head. What was in between the linen cloths? What was in the linen cloths? The body of Christ, but the body of Christ was gone. Now there's the fragrance, the myrrh, the incense, and there would have been blood there because of the blood from the body onto the linen cloth. What is she seeing? If you go back in the story, you go back in the Old Testament, when God makes a way to be with his people, he sets up a tabernacle, he sets up a temple, and inside is a place where God's presence would, would dwell, and where the priests would come in and lay the blood of the sacrifice so that God could be with people, so that God could be with his people. So she looks in and she sees the Ark of the Covenant, so to speak, the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant, the angels, and the place where the sacrificial blood was. It's the place of Jesus's death 
Jesus is the substitutionary atonement that the Bible has pointed to all the way from the beginning. And John just slides that little bit in there. Right? <laughs> the Bible's amazing, guys. If you're new to it, it's just mind-blowing. All right. Onward we go. We now get to the turn here in the story. Verse 14. So having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. It's not fascinating. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And second question, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now how is she going to do that? That's just pure love speaking. I'll do what it takes. And then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher. Man, can you imagine? So here she is. She's talking with these angels. And then, I don't know, I don't know how it played out, but it's, it's almost like she hears something behind her or, or some kind of shuffling or sound. Or maybe there's a flick of the wrist of one of the angels and they're like, hey, check it out. I don't know. But she turns. She turns and she sees Jesus. Well, kind of. Right? She turns and she sees somebody who she thinks is the gardener. Now context, right? It's the first day of the work week. And it's early before the day gets hot and you're in a garden. Who do you expect to see? The gardener. And keep in mind, she's looking through a veil of tears. She has tired and fatigued eyes. She's bleary. She assumes it's the gardener standing behind her. Well, then Jesus asks her some questions. And, you know, he adds this question. He says, whom are you looking for? Now, question. Does he know who she's looking for? <laughs> of course he does. He knows who she's looking for, but does she know? Does she really know who she's looking for? Is she looking for Jesus the teacher? Jesus the healer, Jesus the, the wandering rabbi? Or is she looking for Jesus, the Messiah who had died and is no longer dead? Jesus, the, the one who conquers death. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, creator, savior, redeemer, restorer, sustainer. Who is she looking for? Well, then the most amazing thing happens. Something cuts through the confusion. What is it? What cuts through her confusion? What pierces through the darkness? What opens the blindness of, of those Easter blind eyes? And it's one word. Help me out. You know it. What does Jesus say? Say it. Mary. Mary. She hears her name. She has heard Jesus say it. How many times? She knows the tone. She knows what it sounds like. She hears it again and it rings her soul like a bell i mean jesus should be should be dead right he should be laying in that tomb she saw him bleeding she saw him breathing his last gasping breaths but now there's there's air moving through his lungs through his larynx and she and he says mary mary he's alive can you imagine the adrenaline that would have pumped to her body at that point I don't care how tired you are. If that happens, something awakens in you. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to 
my God and your God. What a sentence. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, quick word on this. Um, he doesn't shove her away when she lurches forward and grabs, grabs onto him. You know, there's some very, various thoughts on here, but, but the idea and the language there is that um, don't, don't be clinging to me. You, you can let go of me. Because you can imagine she's just like vice grip. Like, you're here, right? Okay, it's time to let go. I'm, I'm not going away right now. So let go because I have something for you to do. I need you to go and tell your brothers what has happened. I need you to tell them that, that my father and your father is their father. That my God and your God is, is their God. And so he commissions her. He sends her. And so this one that came weeping in the dark, walking with leaden feet and a leaden heart, is now walking away buoyant with hope, with joy in her soul. Her confusion has become clarity. Her despair has become hope. Her death has become life. Everything has changed. The dawn of the renewal of all things has risen and shone on Mary. She has Easter eyes. Now, a few thoughts. What has happened here truly? What has happened well, it's not just that John beat Peter in a historic foot race. It's not just that there was another resurrection like that Lazarus guy. It's not just that Jesus did something wonderful and, and helped Mary's hurting heart. See, the power of Easter that is bursting forth from the, from the soil of the story is that on Easter morning, the world changed. Easter is not just a point in history. Easter is the very pivot of history by which renewal enters into a broken down world. Something fundamental about reality shook. Something fundamental about reality shifted. Something fundamental, elemental about reality changed and reoriented. And remember, what day are we talking about? Sunday. Which day of the week is it? First day, you go back to the beginning of the story. It's always helpful to go back to the beginning of the story to understand how it all connects. You go back to the very beginning. You go back to Genesis. God creates everything to be good. He does it in a seven-day time frame. Day one, he begins creating. All the way up to day seven, there's rest and, and restoration. And then there's, uh, there's, there's rest and union with him, I should say. There's this peace with him. And now a new week begins. The gardener is at work again. Day one, he is now remaking, restoring, recreating the world. God will remake the world through Jesus. Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. And C.S. Lewis, he, he says it brilliantly. He says the following. He says, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He's the first fruits. He's the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. The world is different now that Jesus is resurrected. There's a glorious, true, and deep magic that is moving throughout this world, bringing life to death, light to darkness, and joy to despair. And um, it, it reminds me of this, this stick, <laughs> this stick in my back, backyard. 
This morning, I, I, around 5.30 or so, I went into my backyard when it was still dark just to kind of enter into that morning dark landscape that we were going to be into. And I went into the back uh, garden area, and we, we have a pomegranate tree there and, and a birch tree and all the lavender bushes. And, and then there's a stick <laughs> that's in this half cask that, that's in this half barrel. And that stick is a fig tree. Like, it's, it's more pathetic than Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, if you know what I mean. And we planted it there last year. And most of the time it's been there, it's just been this white, ashen, pale stick. I thought I had killed the thing. And a couple weeks ago, we were out in the backyard, and, and I yell at my kids, but not like that yell at your kids, but I like to yell at my kids. I'm like, it's alive! And Silas comes over, and he looks at it, and he's like, eh, kind of walks away. There's a little tiny green leaf on this white ashen stick that I thought I had killed. There was life. It was coming out. It was alive. I got so excited. Life had come and it was coming. And so what happened at Easter? There was a green leaf for reality. A new world had dawned. Life had come and was coming. And remember, Mary confuses Jesus for who? The gardener, that is the most glorious, appropriate, correct mistake. Because here is the gardener, the one who created it all in the first place, coming into the situation to re-garden it, to turn a barren wasteland into a blooming garden, to turn a cemetery into, into an orchard. And here he is, walking in to bring renewal and fruit and hope into the life of one who is despairing. It turns despair into delight, alienation into intimacy. The dawn of renewal, Easter, means even the worst of stories can be turned into it happily ever after. Now, this key thought um, brings me to, to four pieces that I want to introduce to you and let you think about because I think some of you might need to hear at least one of them. So here's the first, here's the first thing. Maybe you need to hear this this morning. The dawn of renewal means personal renewal for each of us. It means personal renewal for each of us. Mary. Mary. He called her name. He knew her. He knew her story. He knows you. He knows you inside and out. He sees through you like glass. He knows your secrets, your hopes, your dreams, your desires. He's wired you. He knows you through and through, and he loves you fully. And he calls you by name into life. This is not some connection with a deistic God. This is a personal God who wants relationship with us. Second, maybe you need to hear this. The dawn of renewal means total forgiveness for us. Remember he says, go tell your brothers. 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 Oh, you mean the ones who ran like chickens? You mean the ones who betrayed him? You mean the ones who lied and said they didn't know him? The ones who forsook him? He calls them brothers. He's forgiven them. He offers us forgiveness. See, it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are forgiven. He's died in our place. He's cleansed us of all the awful things that we have done. He's washed us in his blood. He was judged in our place, and he's given us his righteousness. The dawn of renewal means total forgiveness for us. Shame and guilt have no place in your life if Jesus is your Lord. Third, maybe you need to hear this bit. The dawn of renewal means loving adoption for us. He says this mind-blowing line, 
my father and your father, my God and your God. This is, this is the Son of God talking. This is nothing short of adoption. Like God has become our Father because of the work of Jesus by the power of his Spirit. We are not only washed and cleansed and forgiven, but we are accepted and embraced, and we have a good and generous Father, our Heavenly Father. So you're not alone. You're well cared for, and some of you have deep abandonment wounds. You need to know that there's a Father who loves you, and he will never, ever forsake you. And fourth, Maybe you need to hear this this morning. The dawn of renewal means our lives have God-given purpose. He tells Mary, go. Go and announce to them. Tell them. So, so look, he not only cleanses us from our guilt, he not only adopts us as family, he also gives us purpose. He gives us a role to play. He says, go and tell the good news. We are... We are called to be ambassadors of the good news, image bearers of God, agents of healing and reconciliation in a world that deeply needs it. In other words, our lives have eternal significance. Your life is not meaningless. And when you look at the stats from elementary to middle school to high school, the despair and the sense of meaninglessness is just off the charts. And think about the despair that you might have felt in your own marriage or in your family or at the workplace. Your life is not meaningless. It is loaded with meaning. And you are called to be an image bearer, an agent of love and peace. A new world is dawned. The resurrection of Jesus is the dawn of the renewal of the world. He's making all things new. And this means that we're saved by grace. Jesus did what we never could do. He put our sin and death to death. And he gave us the life that we could never earn. Here's the deal. We're not saved because we rise to the challenge of being a better person. We're saved because Jesus Christ, the king of the cosmos, rose from death and has breathed his life into us. Because there's an empty tomb, salvation is not an empty term. Because Jesus died and rose again, his presence is here today and he's calling you by name. He's calling you by name. Mary, Jason, Mark, Kevin, Josh. And in him you are utterly forgiven. You are lovingly adopted by a good and generous father who will never forsake you. You are given purpose and eternal significance. You are saved by grace. Jesus got up and he's re-gardening the world. So may his spirit breathe on you and bring you renewal today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your love. I want to thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for entering into um, the pain and mess of this world and getting your hands dirty, putting your hands right in the soil and planting yourself in as the seed that would bring new life to us all. Thank you for your personal love for us. Thank you for cleansing us of our shame and our guilt. And Father, I pray that that even now, as I speak, you would be renewing and restoring hearts. That those who are followers of you would be revitalized, reinvigorated this morning as your spirit breathes new on them. And for those who came in here not knowing you, never, never seeing you with Easter eyes, by your grace, would those eyes be opened, would the beauty of who you are be seen and celebrated. Lord, we love you. You're alive, you're alive and well, and you're on the loose, and it's a beautiful thing. We pray all this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen.